Welcome, Play On Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Frank Hans. Today we are talking with Joe Payne, sound designer and composer for this season's productions of Henry IV Part II, King Lear, and The Taming of the Shrew. Joe is a composer, sound designer, and projection designer. At Utah Shakespeare Festival, he has designed and or composed over 45 productions since 1999, with such favorites as Into the Woods, Twelfth Night, Hamlet, Othello, and The 39 Steps. In addition to his work at the festival, Joe is designed for Virginia Stage Company, Pioneer Theater, Alabama Shakespeare, and numerous other theater companies and universities throughout the country. He currently works as an assistant professor of sound and media at University of Tennessee, Knoxville. All right. Well, welcome, Joe. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to have you here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I'd love to start off and just have you tell us a little bit about how you got into this wonderful field of composition and sound design. Wow. Well, I I grew up in a family of musicians. Uh, my dad's kind of a, a famous uh, 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 local Utah musician and actor, and my brothers are all all in in bands and and uh, professional gigging musicians. And my dad had a recording studio when I was a kid. And he used to leave reel-to-reel tape up in the closet for us to um, uh, to play with, and so I was playing around, playing around with with sound and 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 in in bands in high school and college, and and when I was in college, they didn't have a sound program, and they they were just like, who uh, does anybody know how to? This is back in reel-to-reel tape, and so they were, they, anybody know how to splice some tape? And I'm like, well, I I do, I. I've been doing that for a long time. <laughs> and I just got hooked. I just got hooked and just kept doing sound. And, and then I came down here uh, to the festival in the early 90s as a board operator um, playing sound cues and, and learned a lot from those designers. Um, and, and then I just kept going. So is that how you got into theater then? Was through here? Or well, how did the, theater arrive in uh, all of this? Uh, my dad w- was a musician and actor. And so I, I grew up um, around theater. Um, he, he's, he's done a whole ton of, of, of community theater and, and smaller theaters in, in Salt Lake and in Provo. And uh, when I was oh, 12 or 13, um, he did this one-man show called The Plane Maker. And uh, he took it all over Utah, and, and it was quite popular in the, in the late 80s. And we, uh, uh, he needed a, a lightboard operator and a soundboard operator. So my older brother uh, ran <laughs> lights and I ran sound. And, uh, and, and that was my sort of first experience with theater. Wow. So yeah. it's really in your blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your experience here. You've, you've been here quite a while and you've worked on a lot of shows. I have. I, this is my 15th season as a sound designer. Uh, when I started as a designer, we had a resident composer, Christine Frezza, who was terrific. And we would do live recording sessions of musicians for a week and a half. And then I'd frantically mix them down and put them in a show and add sound effects and, 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 and create the environment. But when Christine retired, I started, uh, I had been composing a little bit here and there in, in four theater projects up at Pioneer Theater Company. So I, uh, once she retired, I, um, 
I started composing the shows and um, and I was split about 50-50. I'd compose uh, half the shows I did and and find music for the other half and and I just kept going and going and 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 now I'm composing for all the shows that I do and which is which is fun. Yeah, so you're listed as a sound designer and composer for the show. What's the what's the difference between those two? Well, the, the sound design is is the act of of taking music and creating sound effects and finding sound effects and building an environment that is emotionally driving the piece. Um, and uh, uh, some sound designers aren't composers; they just find music or have composers on board, and. Uh, but the act of, of of putting birds in the surround speakers and and uh, creating a little rumble underneath the action to drive the action forward and to emotionally enhance the action is is what sound design is about. As a composer, uh, I kind of treat it the same way. I kind of treat music as sound effects and sound effects as music so that they intertwine together and and uh, emotionally lift the piece, emotionally drive it forward, um, um, keep the action rolling, and and keep the uh, the um, keep uh, the the production on target so that audience doesn't ever feel a, a lull of of um, of the intended uh, action. Wonderful, yeah. So I'm I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about for for audiences who may not be familiar with how extensive the pre-production process is to sort of talk about what your process is like from soup to nuts. Sure. What do you do? You're assigned to some shows in a given season and, and then what happens? Well, first we have a, a lot of meetings just discussing the ideas of the play and the direction and, and, and how we want to influence the audience and what we want the audience to take from the piece. Um, and I immediately start researching music that might uh, be symbolic of the piece, that may never ever end up in the piece, um, um, uh, sometimes purposely never end up in the piece, but are, are emotionally stirring or maybe um, thematically or, or a, a particular sound, a particular instrument. Um, then what I do is I take those source materials that I've showed the director of what, what the direction we'd like to go, and then I create usually four pieces of music that are um, uh, that I've composed that I uh, that are very emblematic of the piece. So if if the piece spans um, action and romance. I'll have a piece that's very action-oriented and a piece that's very romance-oriented. And then I take those four pieces and uh, cut them up into little tiny little bits and use four bars here and four bars here and, and, and two little notes here to, to create a moment on stage that can be um, uh, a, a, you know, angry and mean of, 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 of the two Lear sisters to to something melodic and lonely for Lear um, from these uh, sort of disparate pieces of music. How much in that preparation process do directors sometimes bring their own inspirations and say, well, this is what I'm going for, or this is what I'd be interested in? Often, uh, Sharon Ott with King Lear 
uh, had a band, uh, um, uh, a a band from the Netherlands, they're Scandinavian or yeah, something, right? A Scandinavian Iceland, band, Iceland, or uh, the band is named Sigaros, and it's uh, uh, it, it's just a, a pop band, but they do a lot of sort of tonal stuff, and they do a lot of stuff with with uh, uh, the the uh, lead singer sings in falsetto and and uh, uh, plays an electric guitar with a bow creating these very strange tonal sounds and and um, they have a percussionist who plays these bells and um, these sort of glass bells that are and with these uh, this echo on the, the, that that kind of um, is very haunting so she gave me three or four pieces from that and said this is kind of sort of the touchstone that we want to do and um, and uh, and then I just went from there. Um, on the flip side, Brian Vaughn um, for Henry, originally um, for part one, uh, he said, I want pub songs. I want rugby. I want guys in a bar screaming at the top of their lungs these chants. And I want it to be aggressive and I want it to be masculine and I want it to be... Um, um, driving, and from there, it, it it both of these evolved into something um, different and similar. Um, evolved to to match the piece, uh, but held on to those little touchstones. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Then that that it really is this back and forth process. Then with the director and other designers, and I imagine they're bringing in images and those kinds of things also for scenic design. I am and... very, very influenced by the visual world of the piece. Um, oh, how I, so? Uh, well, I, 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 the music needs to match the costumes in the set. And they, and so when the designers bring in their ideas, I, you know, is the paint scratchy? Is the, is the paint, is the, is the world empty? Is the world filled with stuff? And, and so I try to match that, you know, the, the, the level of orchestration kind of matches the complexity of the world, as well as the uh, um, the, the the mood that the scenic designer has created by uh, paint textures and and all of that. And I'm heavily influenced by that. the The one interesting thing is that is that these four themes that I usually create four or five or six. Sometimes it, it depends on how many themes the show needs. I usually kind of sit on them for a while. I, I create them early on and let the directors kind of feel them out, but then but then I kind of let them sit until I see some of the action, until I see what the actors are bringing to it and, and the, the strength that Lear has or the, um, uh, you know, this Lear, this, um, this Lear is interesting because Cordelia has a lot of strength to her that is, it, it is not typical for the piece, but I think it's terrific. Um, so, so the music for her needed to have some strength to it. And so it's very uh, melodic and pretty, her music is, but it, it still has some, some weight to it. And, and I think that uh, I wouldn't have known that without seeing what the actors were doing. So, so a lot of the little bits and pieces for the show, for the transitions, for the underscore, are all kind of created, ultimately at the very, very end. Just, just once, once they kind of are in the swing of things. Yeah, that that brings up an interesting point, I think, which is, you've talked about all of this planning and, and preparation that you do, but it also seems like uh, 
there is a certain degree of spontaneity and flexibility and kind of being ready to throw everything out the window once you get into the rehearsal process if things don't match up with what you have been working on. So can you talk a little bit about how you balance that that like very carefully planned process with the flexibility and and needing to respond to what's actually happening in the circumstances of well, rehearsal. I have I, I keep options and options and options. I, my show folder is you know everything's computerized now, and so we 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 build a show out of components. Um, you know this little bit of birds and this little bit of music and this little bit of thing and and, and I keep everything compartmentalized so it's all adaptable and changeable. So, so um, often the pieces of music are actually not a single piece of music, but two two things happening simultaneously, or one delayed off of the other, so that I can switch one out and, and um, or 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 modify one. Or change out the crow for a hawk, or change out uh, crickets for cicadas, depending on the mood if it's changing. So, so keeping lots and lots of options open. I also edit. Uh, you know, once we get to this stage, I have you know, ten versions of a of a transition. One that's twelve seconds, and one that's fifteen seconds, and one that's eight seconds, and so that I can I can adapt really easily to the to the time it takes to do stuff. And then probably even throw some of those things out and have to do new things in yes. the process as yes. well. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, right before we go into dress rehearsals, we sit down with the director and lighting designer and sort of talk through the whole show. We call it a paper tech, where we talk through all of our needs for the show and, and when things are actually happening. And um, at that point, they listen to every single cue as it's intended to go into dress rehearsal and then often a director will say um, I love this one and this one and this one but this one you know I think that they're being a little more subtle than you're giving them or I think that they're being a little more active than you're giving them so can we revisit that cue and, and I'll, I'll, I'll have to go back to the studio and, and rearrange and rewrite and um, um, and that has happened a few times in Lear we uh, there, um, um, because of this compartmentalization that I do and pull from different uh, elements of the score, there were five or six cues that, that that Sharon thought were sounding too similar, and sounding a little bit like we weren't we weren't um, taking a left turn when we needed to take a left turn, and and so I, I revisited those and and um, and I think it was worth it. I think they're really exciting now. You, you mentioned that process of being in the studio and, and doing the work there. And you also talked earlier about back in the day when there were uh -huh. live musicians and, yes. and that sort of thing. How much has technology changed the way you do your work over the time that you've been here? And, and where is the role of, of the live musician in that process now, too? <laughs> well, uh, so when I started, it was all reel-to-reel. -reel. We... we uh, um, we did record live musicians. It was much harder to make changes. And so the scores were much simpler. The sound designs were much simpler back then. Uh, with technology, we can make things more complex and more detailed and more specific, which is, and, and allow for more change, which is terrific. Um, regretfully, with our schedule and our timeline, most of what I do is synthetic. Um, 
most of the music that I put on stage is uh, synthetic instruments um, because we don't the, have the luxury of time to uh, sometimes make those decisions in time to get live musicians in to make them happen. Um, uh, sometimes what that does is 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 makes is it is it uh, makes the, the the music a little stilted, a little uh, uh, not as emotional as you'd want. But uh, I pride myself on 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 feeling out the what the computer's giving me and what those samples are giving me so that I, I can make them breathe as much as possible to make them feel real and make them feel honest. Um, um, on the flip side, it makes it really, really easy to make changes, to make, to make modifications, to change, change keys and change tempos and change anything we want about those, those, those sounds. So, um, so 90% of the work now, I just go back to my apartment and sit at my desk with my laptop and, and, and with headphones on, making a whole ton of changes, making, making, and you can very quickly make um, huge modifications to the score. And it seems like there are certain things that might need to be done in a studio, but really a lot of it can be done from the view from your apartment yes, or yes. in a coffee shop it's on true. Main Street. Uh, one funny thing is is that, uh, um, that Lear has a bunch of, because of the source material, because of uh, the interest in, in sort of emulating or, or using uh, Sigaros as a, as a touchstone, um, is his falsetto voice. And so I actually went into the recording studio and sang uh, a whole bunch on this track, uh, on this uh, um, this score. Um, it's mixed in quite a bit, so you won't you you won't. I it, it feels um, internal to the music rather than sitting on top, but but it's been fun. My voice is all over this score, uh, <laughs> but that was done in the studio. Uh, regretfully, I'm not a, a, a um, had to do a lot of auto-tuning to my voice to make it sound sound, sound like a soprano yes, or, or yes, whatever yes. it needs to be yeah. well i don't want to embarrass you but do you have a, a sample of that that we I could do, listen to i do the opening for King Lear with my voice at the top of it. One of my favorite things is is actually this. Um, when they bring King Lear in on the litter uh, after he's been crazy and meets Cordelia again, there's a little uh, beautiful piece of music. And then, and then it's uh, re... Uh, um, it's played again when Lear and Cordelia are in battle. <laughs> Thank you. 
maybe you could play us a clip or two from Henry Ford that reflects the kind of world that you're describing. So this is the top of, of Henry IV, Part Two. The score for Henry IV, Part Two is is drums, lots and lots of big drums, and um, and marching and um, and uh, growly horns, um, not not pretty horns, but angry horns, um, and. But this is juxtaposed against um, the sort of theme for uh, Henry IV, the king, who is a harp that, that underlies the whole thing. Um, so this is the beginning of Henry IV. drums that just play and play and play over over the, the fighting of, of, of Hotspur and Hal. Um, but a lot of the score is just these angry, angry driving drums, uh, which is really, really exciting. It's all, you also, to be clear, too, when the designers got together for Henry IV Part Two this year, were really hearkening back to a lot of the work that had happened with Henry IV Part One in a desire to have some continuity between these two yes, shows. Yes, we very specifically wanted the, the scenery to be similar or the same and the costumes to, to um, drive forward from that. The, uh, um, so the score, the score was, uh, existed for part one. And, but the problem with, with uh, part two is it's it, the... The bar's a little beaten up, and the king's a little more beaten up, and the, and and Falstaff is 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 having a little more trouble than he did before. He's he's kind of more in trouble with the law, and kind of poorer, and 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 Hal's trying to figure himself out as a king, and or as a as a um, as a going to be a king. So it's more contemplative and more. Um, um, and a darker sound. And so I took uh, last year's score and added lots more uh, melodic structure to it and as well as uh, tonality and, and uh, underscoring with drones and, and dark tones. And, and uh, it's, it's been a really fun evolution of something that we very specifically wanted to tie into last year. So it is definitely reminiscent of last year, but but much sort of the, the, the darker, sadder side of it. So we've talked a little bit about Henry. We've talked a little bit about Lear. Maybe we could talk now about Taming of the Shrew and tell us about the world, which is very different from those two plays that you're creating for the Taming of the Shrew this season. Very, very different. Uh, Taming of the Shrew is um, Italy and funny and um, and. Uh, Fred Adams wanted a, um, he wanted it to be light and Italian and um, something recognizable. Uh, one thing that, that goes through as a thread 
through all of these shows because all the directors wanted to um, a modern sensibility. They wanted the audience to really feel, um, and, and we're pushed in that direction through movies all the time, is the juxtaposition between what you're seeing as a period piece and what you're hearing as sort of modern-influenced instrumentation, um, uh, scoring styles uh, throughout the piece. So what we did with Shrew is took traditional Italian, mem uh, Italian folk songs and uh, uh, and orchestrated them for uh, mandolin, accordion, and violin, and so that it it has this very very Italian sound, but they all kind of also in the same respect kind of feel like you know nineteen fifties uh, uh, pizza pie shop uh, music, which is which is really fun and and uh, captures the audience's uh, comic um, bone, I guess, you know. Um, uh, so those have been really fun, too. And I, I just found a whole bunch of traditional, these Italian folk songs, and then I, I modified them greatly. I, I, I added new melodies. I, I restructured them completely and s cut them up into little tiny bits. Um, this is the top of Taming of the Shrew. <laughs> Very light and airy and fun and and uh, and just stereotypically Italian, you know, uh, which has made it uh, fit the comedy very well. Makes you want to stand up and start dancing. I know exactly. So uh, that has been a lot of fun and and very very different. The challenge actually has been trying to make Lear and Henry different uh, because emotionally they're quite similar. Um, the arc of the play, they, they, you know, they have their bad guys and they have their loss and they have their love and they have their... Um, so emotionally they're, they're kind of centered in the same place. Um, so making one... Um, uh, um, uh, drums and horns and harp and the other sort of um, uh, dobro, dobro and sultry and and um, and uh, voice have have been a way I've tried to make them uh, different. True is going to be different no matter what. <laughs> you, you spend a lot of time working here at the Shakespeare Festival and this season you're working on three Shakespeare plays. What do you particularly enjoy or, or find interesting about composition and sound design in the world of William Shakespeare's plays? Um, I, I love doing Shakespeare, especially music and sound for Shakespeare, because um, it's... It's a it's a separated world. It's a world that that we're not so familiar with, so that it gives us freedom to create an environment that is um, expected and and unexpected. Um, 
you know, doing a show in the 1940s, it's, it's, you know, the music is very specific. The environment is very specific. And, and Shakespeare allows for more freedom to, to create emotional moments um, and a score that is, that really sets the environment for the actors in a way that that is um, that is unique and and um, and able to uh, make the um, take the audience somewhere that they've never been, and that's that's really really exciting. In that way, it seems like Shakespeare is very cinematic in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is, and 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 this is. I tell my, I teach at the University of Tennessee, uh, Knoxville. I tell my students all the time that that one problem with that is that Shakespeare's language is very melodic and very musical, and so you have to be very very careful with your choices when to underscore, when not to underscore, how to transition so that you don't break up the musicality of his words, so that you're supporting the musicality that already exists. Um, uh, and that's, that's fun and very challenging. One of the other thing that I love, love about the festival is I just love being outside. I love um, creating theater um, with, uh, with real birds going on, you know, real, real environment with real wind um, happening around us and sometimes supporting that and sometimes fighting against it. But, um, uh, it also allows us to create an environment that is um, uh, uh, quite exciting because the audience really feels that birds are really around us and that the wind is happening really around us and not just coming from the stage, which is which is terrific, which is really, really fun. So you have designed for 15, 16 years now in the Adams outdoor space. There's going to be a new space Next year, have you been part of the conversations about the design of this new space and and what I imagine are not only design issues for sound design and composition, but also for acoustics and that sort of thing? Um, I am incredibly excited to be working in a new space if I'm invited back um, uh, to christen a new space and to create an interesting world. in a, in, a, in a completely new environment, you know. And, and it, it, uh, there are things that I've done over the years that I, you know, I, I sort of treat thunders the same way, I treat birds the same way, because I know what works in the, in the atoms, you know, because I've been here long enough. Um, that when I go to new spaces, it's, it's, it's interesting to uh, go, oh, well, that's what this space is doing. That's what the space itself sounds like, not the sound system or the stage, but this is what the, the, the house, the, the, the space sounds like and this is what it needs and this is how to treat it and, and it's always exciting to go into new spaces and to 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 be the first in a new space would be terrific you know it would be very very exciting well that's that's wonderful and thank you for playing all of these clips throughout so that we can hear examples of, of your work and and have a chance to hear what the worlds of these plays are going to sound like when we come into the theater and 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 hear them and see them. Well, thank you. It's just, it's it's so much fun. I I have so much fun doing this and creating this, and so I'm happy to show off anytime, anytime. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. 
Thank you, listeners, for catching another episode of the Play On podcast. If you are tuning in for the first time, be sure to listen to all of our previous interviews on the festival's webpage. Be on the lookout every Friday for a new episode with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes through your computer or mobile device. Search for Utah Shakespeare Festival Play On Podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can now locate the podcast on our website by clicking on the news headline at the top of the festival, bard.org homepage. 